once again, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning. Today we're going to, um, again, continue our study of the book of Revelation. Today's sermon text is coming from chapter 8. We're going to read all of chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And when you find it, would you please stand for reading God's word? All right. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets as the three angels are about to blow. Right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for bringing us here together today and granting to us your word and granting to us this time together to uh, study and to worship. And Father, help us now to continue in an attitude of worship, worship to you, for you indeed are great and just as We were talking about last week, salvation belongs to you. You are the God who acts for his people. So, Lord, we want to acknowledge that today. We want to give you thanks for that. And we pray that as we consider this passage before us, you will open up our minds, open up our understanding so that we have a greater, better, more accurate grasp of who you are and just how you act for your people and for your own glory. I ask now that you anoint me to speak, deliver the message you would have delivered here, and again, enable all of us to hear, receive, and be rightly affected by your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. 
I will uh, give a little disclaimer up front and, and uh, say that um, I will most uh, surely, at least I'm pretty confident of this, not be able to satisfy all of your curiosities about all of the imagery in the text that uh, Joel just read. <laughs> but but, um, but I, what I am going to do is what, we, what I said from the beginning I would try to do, be, be honest about those things that um, are unclear and, and uh, you know, be, be honest with you about the fact that we're, we're not exactly sure what uh, some of these things represent, while at the same time trying to emphasize those things that are clear. Um, the book of Revelation is, is, like all of the Bible, it's, it's clear in this sense. There is a, a, a main message that it is putting across to us. There's a message here that God has for us that is crystal clear. Now, some of the ways in which it is, uh, the details of it are presented and portrayed are difficult for us. But the main messages come through loud and clear. So we'll, we'll try to um, bring that out again today. I want to start um, by doing a couple things. And, and this may seem a little off, but I'll try to uh, pull it together as we go um, by God's grace. But hold your place here and turn with me just for a moment over to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. I was put in mind of this as I was um, preparing, and, uh, I, and I really do, I'll, I'll show you in a second here, but I really do think this is uh, the, the main point that's coming across here in Revelation, the section of Revelation that we're in, and in the book as, as a whole. Here in, in uh, Isaiah 64, of course, this is the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesying and praying and he prays this way in verse, uh, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 here. And, and some of this, no doubt, you, you'll be familiar with. Um, in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, there's a prayer for revival, isn't it? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. So here's a prayer of Isaiah in which he, he prays, Lord, Lord, come. You know, the, the situation is, is beyond us. We're unable to help ourselves is the idea here. Come, rend the heavens, come down, which, by the way, I would say ultimately, um, uh, well, you, you could probably look at that as playing out ultimately in, in two, two stages. Um, one was the first coming of Christ where he did just this, didn't he? The Word, John in John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 3.16, God loved, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So he, he came down, didn't He? He came down personally. Rend the heavens and come down. Why? That your, that your presence might be made known. Look at, look at um, verse 2 to make your name known to your adversaries. Latter part of verse 2. So, rend the heavens, come down, to make your name known 
to your adversaries. And then he goes on to say with, with, with confidence in verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. Now, I would submit to you that that is still the case today as long as we understand that rightly. Now, God's not a genie in a bottle, and He doesn't, you know, say, make all the wishes you want, and and they're yours. No, it it doesn't work that way. But here's a distinction between Christianity and every other faith, at least every other other, um, faith uh, group that I can think of. Um, Here we have a God, the only God, the true and the living God, who acts for His people rather than the other way around. I mean, we're, we're reading headlines in the news all the time of, and I'm just going to cite one example, but in, in Islam, people acting for their God. Two men drove from Phoenix to the Dallas area a couple weeks ago to defend their prophet, to try to kill people in the name of acting for their God. And what we have in the Bible... The true and living God is presented as not requiring that His people act for Him, but as one who acts for His people. So Isaiah prays because he's in a desperate situation, and he prays with confidence because he knows God, the true, the living God, hears the prayers of His people and responds. So he's not saying, God, let me do something for you. He's saying, God... We are dependent upon you doing something for us. Well, God indeed rends the heavens. He moves heaven and earth, you might say, when necessary, to act in behalf of His people. Now, how does that that tie in to Revelation 8? Well, um, a, a couple of things here just to get the context. Remember, this, this whole vision that, that, we're, that we're looking at now started back in chapter 4, verse 1. And there was, a, in chapter 4, of course, there was a lot of, of emphasis put on the one who sits on the throne. And, and John describes what he sees there and what he hears and all of the praise that is going up before God. And people are uh, the the angelic beings and are, are crying out, "Worthy are you!" And then you get to chapter five, and the one who is seated on, seated on the throne is pictured sitting there with a scroll in his hand. Remember that. And a proclamation goes out in chapter five, verse two: "Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals?" So you've got uh, uh, God sitting on His throne with a scroll in His hand, and it's sealed with seven seals. And the call goes out, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And after search is made, and the way it's described in in 5 verse 3, no one in heaven or under the earth was able to open the scroll. That is, no one was found worthy. But then, one of the, the elders says to John in chapter 5 verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And John says in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And there he gives a description of Christ. And again, praise begins to go up to the Lamb, to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. That's chapter 5, verse 9. Well, then we get over to, we got over to um, chapter 6, and the Lamb, Jesus, is beginning to open the seven seals. And when he gets to the fifth seal, this is chapter 6, verse 9, John says, I saw under the altar, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. So here, here goes a prayer, and this is much like the prayer of Isaiah. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then we come to chapter 8 this morning, and here is the opening of the final seal. And I mentioned previously that um, the first five seals um, describe things that are, that, are, that are taking place. In terms of time, they're taking place in this age we now live in. Uh, the, the, the period between Christ's first coming and His second coming. And then you get to the the sixth seal, back in chapter 6, and that brings you right up to the end time where God is pouring out His wrath on the earth. And then in chapter 7, remember last week we had kind of an interlude there between the opening of the the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. And uh, we've got uh, these assurances that, that God indeed will be victorious in the end, and because He is victorious, um, we, we will be. Um, so, so we have these two, two descriptions of two different multitudes, the 144,000 and then the, uh, the innumerable multitude, both, both in chapter 7. One, the 144,000 pictures, I think all of God's people, the saints of God, going into tribulation, and they are assured there of their safety, and then the innumerable multitude in chapter 7, verse 9, and the following verses, um, I think is referencing the same group of people. It's just coming from a different perspective. But here they are, um, they are pictured as having come out of tribulation. And the whole idea there is that God is able to keep us in the midst of tribulation that is surely coming on this world, which will include... Of course, the, the wrath of Satan and all of the powers of hell un, unleashed uh, on us uh, in so far as God permits. And will also include the wrath of God being poured out on this world. Yet in the midst of that, and we, we've already seen this again alluded to like in chapter 6. We're going to see it here and we're going to see it in, in uh, chapters uh, to come. In the midst of God pouring out His wrath at the very end of the age... He will yet keep His people safe. Those who have been sealed, those who have been marked out for salvation. Um, And as I said last week, uh, kind of an Old Testament um, picture of that, illustration of that, foreshadowing 
you, you could say, is the children of Israel in Egypt. When God is pouring out the plagues upon the land of Egypt, He protects His own people. So while He is bringing judgment on Egypt, He is simultaneously preparing His people to leave that land. And so that's what happens at the end of the age. While God is pouring out His wrath on the world, He is at the same time preparing His people to leave out of here and to be with Him forever and ever. Now, now let's go just... Let's just jump ahead a little bit here to chapter... uh, uh, I'm sorry, to verse 6. We're in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 6. And I want to go through these um, first four... Uh, trumpets, and then and then come back and 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 again, as I said earlier, just let's try to put all this together and see what's going on here. Verse six. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. Okay, let me let me say this. Uh, with the with, as far as the seven trumpets, uh, we just, in verse one we had the opening of the seventh seal, right? The seventh seal of the scroll. Well, it seems that what follows with the with the um, the blowing of the sounding of the seven trumpets and all of the events that accompany them, um, this is what takes place. Um, this is the contents, you might say, of the opening of the seventh seal. And and what is going on here? is, again, uh, judgment. God is, God is pouring out judgment. So you've got a brief description of this back in chapter 6. And I'll just give you this. I won't read through it. But back in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And, and now we're beginning to see some of it uh, described in more detail. And this is not going to be the last time. We're going to see this um, repeatedly as we, as we move through the book, um, Lord willing. All right, so the first angel blows, and there's hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, or cast upon the earth, and a third of the earth was, was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So, so uh, um, the, the earth is not, uh, you know, the grass, the trees, they're not totally destroyed, but a significant amount, right, one-third destroyed by this hell and fire and uh, the, that is mixed with blood. And then the second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So again, you've got, you've got mass destruction, not total destruction, but mass destruction this time is focused on, on the sea. And then, verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And uh, you may have a little note in your Bible, as, as I do, a little footnote. Uh, that tells you the, the meaning of the name there. Wormwood is the name of, of a plant and of the bitter-tasting ac- extract derived from it. So, so it's used, no doubt, symbolically here uh, to describe the bitterness uh, caused by, this, uh, by this, uh, this event, the star that fell from heaven. 
A third of the waters became wormwood. That is probably the idea is they became bitter. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So now the, the sun and the moon and the stars, the light of the sun of the, and the moon and the stars is, is, uh, is affected in such a way that um, they are darkened, right? One-third, sun, moon, and stars, um, darkened. Then you get to verse 13, and he said, I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. It flew directly overhead, and it's saying this, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Again, those who dwell on the earth, that's identifying the target, okay, the target group. These are the people, this is the, all the way through the book of Revelation, you've got this contrast between the people of God, you know, God and, and God's kingdom. You've got a contrast between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. The people of this world, and they're repeatedly referred to as those who dwell on the earth. Um, more literally, the down dwellers. You heard me say that before. Uh, the down dwellers. So that's who wrath is being poured out on. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's for emphasis, by the way. Um, it, it, saying it three times like that is just, is just for extreme emphasis. Whoa, whoa, whoa. To those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So he's, so he's saying there's more coming. Now, in regard to um, the imagery here, let me just say that there is like, like a, almost like an infinite amount of speculation here as to what each of these things represents. Um, you know, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. Then you've got a star. A star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. All the waters made bitter. And then you've got another trumpet blowing, and the sun and the moon were struck, and the stars, and a, a third of their light was darkened. Well, what is all of that representing? Well, let me just say I'm, I'm, I can be sure of this. It's, it's rep- representing some very <laughs> serious um, events, tribulation. Um, now, there's, there's speculation by some, you know, thinking that these things uh, are, are, are not to be taken literally, and I, which I, I, I agree with that uh, so far. But uh, some, would, some say that uh, probably what's being signified here is um, kingdoms, you know, being, being toppled. For example, the Roman Empire um, being, being affected, uh, infiltrated, or, or, or overtaken rather, and toppled. Um, others, and, and you know, it's just described in various ways here. Others speculate that uh, these things have reference to the church, and what they are describing is bad doctrine coming in. You know, false teaching. So, for example, with with wormwood, um, the idea would be that this um, this false doctrine has become prevalent and uh, and uh, affects the church, and and so it all becomes bitter. And certainly we've, we've, we've seen both of those things, haven't we? I mean, down through the ages, we've seen kingdoms rise and fall. Nothing unusual about that. 
And certainly down through the church age, we have seen um, at various times and for lengthy amount of times, we have seen uh, the church affected by wrong doctrine and, uh, and, and, you know, and it has devastating effect. Well, I'll just say this. I, I am certainly inclined to think that these things are symbolic, right? Um, as to, as frankly, as to what exactly they represent, I don't know except for this. They, they certainly represent great tribulation on this world like it has never known. So, in other words, what John is describing here is, is a period in time um, that, that, is, that is, is going to be virtually impossible to endure. Certainly without, uh, as far as God's people, certainly without God's aid, right? It, it, it will not, would not be, um, we would not be able to endure. Of course, I suppose we could say that about all of life, right? And without, without the, the power of God, we wouldn't last a second. But this is going to be a particularly uh, intense time in terms of uh, the opposition coming from Satan and his kingdom and in terms of God's wrath being manifest on the world. Now, if we had time, I would talk to you about some ways in which it is being manifest now. But, as I said, in, in this particular time, it's going to be more intense, more obvious and everybody's, uh, you know, now some people who are under the wrath of God don't even recognize it today. There's coming a time when it will, you, you will not be able to avoid it. In fact, remember earlier on, uh, people of, we, we read, where people of all um, ages and social classes were trying to hide from God because it is the day of His wrath. They're even calling on mountains to fall on them and things of that sort. It's, it's a horrific time. So this much I know about all the imagery here. It is, it is describing a time of great tribulation. Now, here's what I think is the main point. And this is going to take me back to um, what we read in Isaiah and in the previous chapters here. Let's go back to um, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1 here. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... Now, that's, that's when all of this occurs, at the opening of the seventh seal. So, so this is, picture in your mind again, this scroll that, that is sealed up with seven seals. And he's going one at a time. You know, again, this is um, analogy to describe, of, of course, spiritual um, realities that are taking place in time and space and, and in, in glory. But he's going one at a time, undoing the seals in order to open the scroll, right? And we talked about that earlier. What does that represent? Well, I think it represents bringing all of history to its ultimate and proper end, which includes judgment on those who have opposed God and final and full reward for all of God's people. The eternal state, you could say. So how are we going to get to that point? Who, who, is, who is worthy to actually make those things play out so that the justice of God is brought upon this world in the form of uh, His wrath and so that the fullness of God's blessing and mercy 
is, is poured out on His people in the form of the blessed eternal state. Who, who is able to see to it that those things actually happen? Think of all the promises that we have in the Scripture of final judgment to come and of final and full blessing to come and being with Christ forever. What assurance do we have that all that's really going to happen? Who is able to make it happen? Well, the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain, right? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of Jesse. He is worthy. Alright, so now He's opening the seventh seal. And you're getting right up to the point of the opening of the book. The final judgment for unbelievers, and the fullness of blessing for believers. So, so we're, in, we're getting into that period that brings us right up to the end, which we know as the great tribulation, when God is manifesting His wrath on this world. All right, so let's go back to verse 1 again. When Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Um... George Ladd, one commentator, George Ladd, uh, says it is the silence of dreadful anticipation of the events that are about to ensue now that the time of the end has come. And that's probably right. Uh, you know, in other words, um, the final seal is being broken and all of heaven goes silent in anticipation. The end has come. Then I saw, verse 2, the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And we just, we just read um, about the blowing of the first four. Seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer. And the whole, the whole imagery here, I mean, picture yourself in a, uh, a, a temple setting. If you just kind of go back in your mind to the Old Testament temple and... And, and you've, you've got the priesthood doing uh, the service before the Lord, and they're, they're offering before the altar incense before the Lord, which the Lord often referred to, the incense and, and the, the, the animals as well, the, the Lord often referred to as a sweet-smelling savor, right? I mean, sometimes I'm reading through there, and I, you know, like you're reading about a burnt offering, and, and I'm thinking... Um, sweet smelling safer. <laughs> well, I had to. I don't. I don't want to. You know, affect you too much here before lunchtime. But, but you know, we we. I I tried that one time, doing away with some of our goats that had died. And let me tell you, uh, there was nothing sweet about that saver uh, that that I could tell. But <laughs> in fact, it was uh, not pleasant. But these offerings to the Lord, and that's really the key thing here. Are, are pictured as a sweet-smelling savor to God. All right, that's the picture here. It's like, it's like the Old Testament temple worship. And here's this angel offering an offering before the Lord at, at the altar. And John says, he's, he's at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. On the golden altar before the throne. That's interesting, isn't it? So, so here's the picture. And again, it's just, it's just a, it's a picture. It's symbolism, but it's reflecting a, a, a reality. It's pointing to 
a, a spiritual reality. But here's the picture. You've got an angel, and he has this much incense. He's given much incense to offer to God with the prayers of the saints. So, so the picture is you've got the, the prayers of the saints going up before God as a sweet savor to Him. Now, I, I think that's uh, just powerful and very encouraging as Christians. God hears and receives and responds to our prayers. In fact, I would say this. When you're, when you're reading the Bible and you, and, you, and you come across passages that talk about God hearing our prayer, that, that, all three of those things are meant there. In other words, it doesn't just mean, like, I may hear, you may say something to me and I may hear you and I may not respond. Or I may reject what you say. I don't agree with that. When the Scripture talks about God hearing us, it is implying, it, it, it includes the fact that He receives it and accepts it and responds to it. That's what it means when God hears the prayers of His people. It means that, like Isaiah, when, that's why Isaiah prayed with confidence, Lord, rend the heavens, come down. Make your name known. And he says, you know what? I hadn't seen, ear hasn't heard of any other God like you who acts on behalf of his people, those who wait for him. Isaiah knows that what God hears, it doesn't just mean that he hears, but it means that he responds, he acts. So, here are the prayers of the saints. And notice it says all the saints, right? He's given a golden censer with much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. So, what you have here is a picture of all of our prayers ascending before God as a sweet-smelling savor before Him. A sweet-smelling savor in his nostrils, to use an anthropomorphism, all right? And, and just like it does here. So, so you've got an acceptable offering picture. And notice it says, he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Now, I'm going to do a little speculating of my own here, except I think we're on safe ground here. If I didn't, I wouldn't say it. But um, why, why, is, why is that picture given? Something being mixed with our prayers. Well, I, I'll tell you why. I'm, I'm going to show you in a minute. I'm going to get this from other passages. But I'll tell you why. Because our prayers are so bad. Uh, they're, they're so um, lacking. So... Uh, insufficient, you might say. But don't be discouraged by that. I know that sounds very discouraging, but 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 don't be discouraged about it. That's why he's he's mixing incense with them to make them acceptable. Now here's why I think that pictures. Even if even if this is not pictured there, this is still true. So so this should encourage you. This is Romans eight twenty six. Paul says, likewise the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You see what Paul's saying? We don't even know and, and of course a lot of times we can 
we can readily testify to that. I, I don't know how to pray in this situation. But then there are other times that we think we do know how to pray. And I think what Paul is saying here is, look, our, our prayers, you know, just in and of themselves, they don't cut it. They need help. They need help. You say, well, I know some guys that are really good at praying. They're really eloquent. Well, that's from our perspective. But from God's perspective, they need help. Our prayers are inadequate. Don't be discouraged by that, though, because here's what Paul says. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches hearts, He who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See what Paul says? Paul says, you know what, our, our prayers are inadequate. So here's what God does. He's provided a translator. And our, our prayers that are so weak, the Holy Spirit in, translates into the will of God. <laughs> so, I mean, he's putting incense with the prayer to make it sweet in the nostrils of God. The Holy Spirit Himself interceding for us. And then we're told in other places that Jesus is our intercessor, right? He intercedes for us. So there's a mixture, because our prayers in and of themselves are certainly adequate, but they are not left to themselves. I mean, if you're a child of God, then, then the prayers go up with help. The Holy Spirit translating them into the will of God so that God hears. And what does that mean? That means He responds. He receives it and He responds to it. That's what I think is pictured in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire. Fire often represents judgment, and I think that is the case here. He took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And we, we've seen that, that very language before back in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 5. Um, we'll see it again. Chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18, chapter 19, verse 6. And it, it seems to be um, representing uh, expressions of the majesty and power of God. And those are, you, I mean, if you've ever been in a Louisiana thunderstorm, for example, and I've never been in an earthquake, <clears throat> but I can imagine that's a, a pretty earth-shaking, pardon the pun, uh, experience. But I've been in Louisiana thunderstorms and peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning. They can get pretty, pretty impressive, pretty serious, and uh, pretty powerful. Those are expressions, or representing expressions, 
of the majesty and power of God. So what's happening here? Now let's try to tie all of this together. And here's what I think is going on. Look, look back in uh, chapter 6, once more, at the, at the opening of this fifth seal. And this is going to be down in verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. And just keeping this in context, we're, we're still in this same, um, same section, the opening of the seven seals, same vision. So here's the fifth one, in chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So in other words, these are people who have been, the souls of people who have been martyred. They have been killed in the tribulation on this earth. And, and, and let me just reiterate one more time. We've said this a lot of times too, but our whole existence in, in this world is tribulation, all right? The tribulation is the period, you, you could say, from, again, from Jesus' first coming to His second coming, all right? John 16:33, Jesus says to believers, In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've conquered the world. So, that's, that's the life of a Christian in this world, or the life of Christianity in this world is tri- to know tribulation. But then you get to the very end of the age where there's this ramped up, intensified tribulation. Jesus uh, in, in, uh, in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 and Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, they compare it to uh, a, a woman in labor, which leads me to believe the idea is there that, that, that it intensifies. Just like a woman in labor, the pains get, get more intense and they get more frequent. So, the tribulation, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places, famine, pestilence, those are things that we've known throughout human history. But at the end of the time, the frequency and the intensity increases. That's the period we call the Great Tribulation. Okay. So these people have been martyred in the Tribulation. And what are they doing? They're, they're praying, essentially. They're crying out, crying out to God in verse 10 with a loud voice. O Sovereign Lord, a recognition of His sovereignty. They know He's in control. They don't understand why things are playing out the way they are, but they know ultimately God's in control. And by the way, that is a bedrock for Christians to stand on. That's, that's a place to plant your feet. You don't, you don't have to understand all the circumstances, but know that He's in control. He's sovereign. So they cry out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. Listen to the prayer here in the form of a question. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And we talked about that when we went through chapter 6. There's a, there's a longing, right? In fact, in one sense you could say it's, it's inherent. It's innate. And every, every person, God has hardwired that into us. A longing for justice. And for the, for the Christian, it, it, that takes on the proper uh, definition, you know, and, and content. In other words, what we, what we want to see in the end is God glorified, right? 
We want to see evil put down and God glorified. So that's what they're longing for and that's what they're praying for. And I won't take the time to go there, but you, you can go there on your own. Go back and look at, read Romans 8 again, where we were just a few moments ago, and you will see that that longing has infected all of creation. It's waiting for the day when the sons of God are revealed. And, I mean, our very inner beings moan and groan for that. In fact, Paul says all of creation does. So we've got this longing for things to be set right. Whatever the circumstance. I mean, sometimes it's like this. It's, it's severe persecution in the form of, of, of martyrdom or something like that. You know, just like we're seeing in, right now in other parts of the world. People being beheaded for their testimony. Sometimes it's, it's still pretty intense, but, uh, but it's certainly a lot lesser form than that. We, we're starting to see the first throes of it in our own country, where I guess I shouldn't say started anymore. I mean, people have already been put out of business. We're, we're seeing persecution simply because we are Christians. It just hasn't gotten physical yet, but it's certainly gotten in, in, into the economic realm. I mean, they're driving people out of business. It's not hypothetical anymore. It's happening here. And then there are other kinds of hardships and troubles that we face in this time of tribulation in this world. You know, disease, problems in relationships. I mean, there there are just all kinds of horrible things that, that can happen. And so there's this longing in us for things to be set right. And that's exactly what God has promised to do, right, at the end of the age. In fact, it's going to be a better state than Adam and Eve knew because they had the potential for sin. And in fact, they did sin. But they had the potential for sin while they were in their perfect environment. Jesus is going to bring us to a place where there's not even the potential for sin. And we cry out for that. And we cry out for justice. Lord, how long? How long are you going to let your name be blasphemed? What I'm saying is this. What, what we're seeing in chapter 8 is the answer to the prayer here in chapter 6. O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so you, you, you get, in fact, even in chapter 6, he, he, begins to, uh, he gives some imagery of it there. But then you get over to chapter 8, and what does the angel do after he offers up the prayers? He fills the censer with fire and casts it on the earth. And then the seven trumpets begin to blow and all of these judgments are begin to be poured out upon the earth. It is God responding to the prayers of His people. Particularly in this context, I mean, you know, it's the prayers of those martyrs in chapter 6. But I know it's not limited to them because he tells us here, right? I mean, they're included, but it's not limited to them because here he says in verse 3 that this angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. So it's the prayers of all the saints that are ascending, and this includes you and I, that are ascending before the throne of God as a sweet savor to Him 
And he responds by answering the call for things to be set right. And that's what we're starting to see go into motion here. In other words, he brings judgment upon those who dwell upon the earth. Ultimately, final judgment. They'll all be cast into the lake of fire. And fullness of blessing on believers as he brings us into the eternal state. To be in his presence forever. Now listen, here's a final note. The only one who is able to bring all of these things to pass is Jesus. Right? Who is worthy? To open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Well, the, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. He will bring about recompense in behalf of his people. We do not act for him, he acts for us. Us and Isaiah, and we ought to be saying the same thing. Isaiah says, Lord, I've never seen anything like this. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. A God who acts for his people in response to their prayer. And it's not because our prayers are powerful. In fact, we've already seen they're weak. And it's not because of who we are in and of ourselves, because we're sinners like everybody else. It's because of who Christ is and because of what He's done in our behalf as the Lamb slain. Your and my, your whole future, all the way out into the ages upon the ages, and my whole future, uh, rests upon Christ. Where, Where do we stand with Christ? Where do you stand with Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you in the category of those who dwell upon the earth, meaning the enemies of God who will suffer His wrath? Are you in the category of the saints that we read about a moment ago whose prayers are going up as a sweet-smelling savor before Him? That depends on whether or not you're in Christ. Do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Would you stand, please? I'll just say, we'll pray and we'll dismiss. And I'll just, before we do pray, if, if you don't know the answer to that, in other words, I don't, I don't know where I stand with Christ. Or maybe you say, honestly, I, I know where I stand with Christ and it's not good. I'm on the wrong side. Settle that today by the grace of God. That is, cry out to Him for mercy. And you know what? You can do that with this assurance. Jesus says, He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Submit to Him as Lord and Savior. If you've got questions about that or you want somebody to pray with you, I'm happy to do that. And I'm, I know there are some other folks here that would do so as well. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, we're going to pray and dismiss, but I'm not in a hurry. So you, you, you want somebody to talk to about that, uh, grab me and we'll go aside and talk. Let's pray. Uh, Dan, Brown, you mind praying for us and we'll be dismissed.